you have a Bible, would like to turn in your Bible, we are in Psalm 12. Last week we only looked at the first two words. We will get further than that today, Lord willing. Uh, we, Lord willing, we'll finish the, the psalm, but I'll read it all again, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 12. To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from the, among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired, and authoritative word. Let us pray. We thank you, God, uh, for this passage of your holy word. And Lord, may we hear you speaking to us through this word. Speak, Lord, and help us to listen and pay attention. Lord, that we might understand how it applies to our lives and it applies, Lord, to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said last week, we looked at the short prayer at the beginning uh, of this psalm. Help, Lord. Help, Lord. And as we saw, it has great application. Any number of situations, that prayer can be used. Well, David used this prayer for a particular reason. In this psalm, he was burdened about the moral decay around him. In verse 8, it sums up the cultural condition that he faced. The wicked prowl on every side while vileness is exalted among the sons of men. And so people uh, were unrestrained in their wickedness. They were not punished for their evil. They strutted about boldly and freely. Uh, without even a reprimand. Uh, under King Saul's reign, uh, vile people and vile practices were tolerated so that what was to be a godly nation, a theocracy under God, had become an ungodly one. In Psalm 11, verse 3, David asks a question. He said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's a question that every generation needs to ask itself. And in our own culture today, vileness is certainly being exalted throughout the land, especially through sexual perversion. Uh, we see the LBGTQ movement gaining momentum with every passing year in this country. And some would say, well, we should support these people. They simply are... Um, cannot help that they are attracted to the same sex or whatever. 
And there's no harm in people expressing their love to each other in whatever way they might choose to do. But, you know, King David knew that, no, this is not simply a matter for an individual to live his own life with no harm to anyone else. That if the foundations of a nation are destroyed, such as God's will for men and women in in terms of marriage, in terms of love, um, if that is destroyed, the nation will be destroyed. Uh, And um, in 2011, the Italian history professor, Professor Roberto de Mattei, made the following statement about the decline of Rome. You know, there's been a lot of uh, ink written about the decline or collapse of the Roman Empire. Quote, he, Dr. Mattei said, the collapse of the Roman Empire and the arrival of the barbarians was due to the spread of homosexuality. The Roman colony of Carthage was a paradise for homosexuals and they infected many others. Now, of course, as you can imagine, he came under fire for such a statement. Uh, and his claim is disputed. And, of course, there were many other factors that led to the fall of Rome. Uh, however, we know that God is and does judge uh, the nations. The downfall of Rome certainly could have been and probably was a judgment of God upon them for their sin. Not only the sin of homosexuality, but certainly that was uh, one of the more um, egregious sins of that day. Well, some people think we're witnessing the downfall of Western civilization today, uh, the Western Empire, if you will. Um, And the truth is, any civilization that turns away from God and his commandments will eventually crumble and disintegrate. Unless we see a great turning back to God and to the truths of his word, uh, I think the United States, as we know it or have known it, will cease to exist. So what can be done? Can anything be done about the decline of our own nation and other Western nations around the world? Well, as we study this psalm, I, I think we will have some answers. And the first thing we'll look at is three points today, yes, uh, three points. The first one is an assessment of the cultural trends around us. And David cries out, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. The faithful disappear from the sons of men. And I already read to you verse 8 that spoke of the wicked prowling and vileness being exalted. Well, in this urgent cry for help, uh, David, uh, what is is on David's heart here? Is he praying, oh, Lord, heal me, I'm, I'm sick. Or, Lord, uh, I'm in such poor living conditions. I'm on the run and I'm living in caves and I want to be living in my home. Does he cry out because his bank account is low on funds? Well, these are the kind of things we pray about uh, all the time. But what is David's heart burdened by? He's burdened by not the low level of his bank account, but the low level of godliness at that time. The godly and faithful people had vanished as far as David could see. But what is a godly person? Uh, What is a godly person? Well, it's kind of obvious, really. A godly person is someone who is focused on God. He lives for God. 
God is truly God to, to, to a godly person. That everything they do is done in reference to God. They seek first the kingdom of God. They seek to be saved by this God in Jesus Christ. They live in dependence on Christ. Their life is oriented to praise God for all things. The godly person has a desire to know God better. To please this God that he loves. Let me ask you this morning, does that describe you? Are you a godly person? Do you have godly desires? Well, we, we do have those desires. Probably not as strong and as healthy as they ought to be. But the fact, the question is, do you yearn for a stronger level of godliness in your own life? If you do, then that's a good thing. If you bemoan your ungodliness, your lack of godliness. But godliness includes such things as the fear of God. Reverence for Him. It includes a desire to obey in all the Lord's commands. And, and to be godly is to live in joyful submission to God as the Creator, the Sustainer, and the Redeemer of your soul. So the godly person is committed not only to keeping God's commandments in his own or her own life, but to also influence others to keep them. Uh, the godly person acts as a preservative against moral decay in society. Now, if, as David complained, godly men had disappeared from the land, it was no wonder that the culture was in decline. Uh, we could say the same thing today. Uh, why is our culture in such a moral freefall today? Well, one reason is there are fewer godly persons in our day. Uh, and statistics bear this out. Particularly the younger generations uh, are turning away from the church, turning away from God. But um, the fact that there are fewer godly people means that there's not as much of a challenge or a barrier uh, put up against evil anymore. And so the Lord says in Matthew 5.13 to us as believers, He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor or savor, how can it be seasoned? And if it's, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You see, salt was used not only to flavor food, but it was all mainly used as a preservative uh, in ancient times. And if salt loses its saltiness, it loses its preserving ability. Uh, and, if, and if Christians lose their godly character, their godliness, what is left to stop the rotting of society? Not much. David must have been feeling like the prophet Elijah who complained in his day, 1 Kings 19, 14. Elijah said, the he's, he's praying to God, he says, the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Well, both Elijah and David felt that they were alone, uh, that, that the godly had ceased. And, and I'm sure that you and I feel that way at times, especially in our day. But God responded, if you remember, He responded to the prophet Elijah, and He says, Yet 
I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal. And so in Elijah's day, there were more godly people than he realized. And probably the same was true in David's day. Same is true in our day. But David's point, even if he uses, and he does use hyperbole, he uses exaggeration here, was still a valid point. When godly men and women are few, then you and I need to call on the Lord for help. Because that spells trouble for our land. When the godly are few, the number of the ungodly increases. And wickedness grows and God must judge wickedness and he will judge the nation that uh, descends into these kinds of things. David went on to describe them in verses 2 through 4. In verse 2 he says, first of all, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. How can you tell when someone has lost the fear of God? Well, one way to know is by their speech. And we can tell by the way they speak. Instead of speaking pure words, kind words, gracious words, things uh, about God and, and eternity and the kingdom of God, instead of speaking about how we can do good, uh, these people speak idly with each other. That is, they speak vanity, they speak lies, as these, this Hebrew phrase can be translated. That is, they are guilty of empty, worthless, false, meaningless speech. It's, it's frivolous. It's foolish talk that has no value. It's what we find on social media for the most part. It's what we hear from celebrities, politicians, and just everyday people. Uh, they're guilty of flattering one another. Uh, they speak with a double heart, he says. Literally, the Hebrew says, with a heart and a heart. Uh, so, so that they may say one thing, but they really mean another. And so when you flatter, when you're guilty of flattery, uh, you don't really mean what you say. And what you say, you're only trying to uh, make someone else uh, feel better. You're trying to puff them up with pride, and that often happens. And that leads to the next uh, thing. David has a prayer he says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Well, in case you haven't noticed, June, for some people, is Pride Month. And, you know, we, we see the parades. Uh, we hear about them anyway. Uh, I haven't attended one myself, of course. Uh, rainbow flag celebrations of homosexuality and other sexual perversions. They're pretty much really all around the world right now. What was once considered a shameful thing in our society is something now to be proud of. Do I have to remind you today? Probably not, but I will anyway. Uh, that God created man as male and female. Uh, he created them uh, to be uh, either living in chastity as single persons or to be married, one man and one woman for life, that God has willed that men be created male and female, only two genders, and that God commands us not to engage uh, in sexual activity outside of the bonds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Let me remind you that God considers homosexuality a great evil. 
In Leviticus 18.22, God says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It is an abomination. And God hates the perversion of His holy design for men and women. And God also hates pride. Uh, put those two together and you have a very doubly evil combination. In Proverbs 6, we read, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. And the first two on the list are a proud look and a lying tongue. God will one day judge the proud. On the day of judgment, there will be no pride expressed. It will disappear forever. In Isaiah 13:11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil. When God says, I will, don't doubt it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. When God says, I will, he will. So one day, all pride, including gay pride, will be punished. It will cease to exist. He will bring it to an end. The proud, and that includes every one of us in this room, to the proud, Scripture says that God resists the proud. If you are proud that you're not one of the people that I've just been talking about, then you need to repent of your pride. <laughs> uh, but God resists the proud, you see. Whether it's in the church or outside of the church. But he gives grace to the humble. So we need to be humble. See, this is a temptation for us is to, to boast that we are righteous when they out, those people out there are not. We need to humble ourselves. And those who are out there, if they will humble themselves, no matter what they have done, if they will turn to Jesus Christ, turn from their pride, and humble themselves before God, being ashamed of their sin and pride, then they can find grace and salvation in Jesus Christ today. In verse 4, he describes the attitude of proud people. They say this, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. You see, they, people thought well, they can say these things and they will accomplish great things with their mouths, with their plans and their pronouncements. But the Bible teaches, however... That we are not our own. We are accountable to the one who made us. And as Christians, we have been redeemed with a great price. And we therefore ought to glorify God with our bodies. That means every part of our bodies belong to the Lord. That's why Romans 12 says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. The whole of us, including the tongue. So when these men said our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? They're denying God's rightful authority over their lives. And they were declaring their autonomy, thinking that they could live independently of God, that they could just turn away from God and it would make no difference. They didn't need God. They didn't want God. And they, were, they were doing as Pharaoh did in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him, his voice, to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Never say never, Pharaoh. 
you did let Israel go because God forced your hand to do so. He intervened. And, and so fallen man, whether ancient or modern, we try to dethrone God, but that cannot be done. They believe the lie, as Adam and Eve did, sadly, that they could be their own God. So we can only pray that God will intervene in our nation to silence those who are clamoring to do and say whatever they please without any recognition of God, often with blasphemous things said about God, often with foul lips and words. And they, they may say, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? They need to remember Pharaoh. And you remember the words of Jesus who said this. He said, I say to you, for every idle word that men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. God does not forget these things. Now, he will forget when we seek his forgiveness, when we seek Jesus Christ. He said, your sins I will remember no more. But until then, God doesn't forget a single thing that's ever been said. So the protesters who shout in anger at the overturning of Roe versus Wade, who are they shouting at? They're shouting at God. Isn't it so obvious? We want to kill our babies. We want to be able to, to kill innocent babies in the womb. This is so obviously evil to us. And they say, our bodies are our own. Who is Lord over us? And the answer is Jesus Christ is Lord over you whether you realize it or not all authority has been given to him in heaven and on the earth and so he's coming to judge the world he has heard and hears the cries of the unborn the silent screams of the unborn and he remembers what the wicked have done to them and this leads us to the second point from our passage that of god's promise to arise and protect those who look to him Verse five. This is the key verse, really. Of you know, a lot of times when when we preach, the the punchline comes, you know, the, the at the very end of the sermon. But in the middle of this psalm, we have uh, the mountain peak, so to speak. Verse five says, "For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise," says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. So David has prayed that God would cut off flattering lips. Uh, that he would uh, cut out the tongue that speaks proud things. He's prayed, help, Lord. And now God is arising to help. To help the helpless. And God in due time will arise. He will let the wicked know that he's Lord over them. Their tongues and everything else about them. He hears the cries of the righteous. Uh, and these are the ones he's referring to, I believe, uh, that are being oppressed. He says the needy and so forth. These are the ones who are most often uh, being oppressed around the world today. They're the Christians who are persecuted, who are poor. They're the Christians in Pakistan who are the, the lowest level of the social rank. And they're often not allowed to have any job that would ever bring them out of poverty. And... Uh, but these are the ones who are, who are uh, the righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And God hears the sighing of the needy, the sighing of the righteous, the oppression for the oppression of, uh, of their lives. And, you know, we sigh today. We groan because 
Still, over 63 million babies have been killed in the womb since 1973. And we groan when we hear uh, this Speaker of the House of Representatives saying foolish things like this publicly that drag queens are what America is all about. We groan. And we shake our heads in disgust when the day after this decision, the Roe versus Wade decision was made that our president says we need to overturn this decision. Congress needs to restore Roe versus Wade. And we weep over the mass shootings that seem to occur every week in our, in our land. And, and, and we mourn people who live in the inner cities around our, uh, the big cities of our nation like Chicago that weep every day as shootings and murder rates are astronomical. And most of all, we weep over the lost souls, our lost sons, daughters, grandchildren, parents, as well. We weep over the lost souls in our land, the ones who don't know Jesus, and if they die before coming to know Him, will spend an eternity of torment. But let me ask you this. Are you calling on the Lord in prayer? Are you praying that prayer, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be? Are you praying that God will make Himself known to a wicked generation? That God will not only uh, judge the wicked, but that He will convert them? Are you praying that He will rend the heavens and come down and visit this world and make Himself known, reviving us and awakening this nation? You see, we have not because we ask not. Um, earnestness in prayer is a powerful thing. Look again to Elijah. Although he was wrong about thinking he was the only one left, he was right that he prayed fervently. He was the uh, he prayed fervently that uh, the rain would come, and it did. And so James says, by his example, the fervent the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. We need to be on our knees for this nation. God has allowed wickedness to arise in our nation. But when wickedness arises, did you know that that's actually a sign that God is about to arise because he does not turn a blind eye to such things. John Calvin writes the following. He says, When therefore the injuries, the extortions, and the devastations of our enemies leave us nothing but tears and groans, just like David's situation, let us remember that now is the time is at hand when God intends to rise up and execute judgment. So God has promised to arise, especially as we seek him and ask for his help. We cannot just sit back and say, well, okay, he's going to arise. That's great. You know, I can't wait to see it. No, we must ask him. We must plead to him to do what he's promised to do. And if we don't get an immediate answer, what do we do? We keep at it. We keep knocking on heaven's door until God hears God says at the end of verse 5, I will set him in safety for which he yearns. That is, he will protect the poor and needy, especially those who belong to him by faith. And you know, all believers are in the hands of their heavenly Father. We are preserved in him. We are safe in Jesus. No one, Jesus says, can pluck us from his hand. And nothing in all creation, Paul writes, can separate us from the love of God in 
uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus is the rock, remember that. And when our lives are built on Him, the storms of life, no matter how awful they be, wickedness and evil all around us cannot, cannot take down our lives as they are founded on Jesus. Spurgeon comments that when God promises to set us in safety, that means preservation on earth and eternal salvation in heaven. And finally, the third point in Psalm 12, we see that in returning to the Word of God, to the, to the Scriptures, we will be preserved. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And this verse, you see, is, is meant to stand in stark contrast to verses 2 to 4. Man's words are flattering words. They're false. They're lying words, vain words, proud words, wicked words. God's words are pure words, perfect words, holy words, gracious words. What a wonderful thing it is. Have you given thanks to God lately for the fact that He has spoken in His Word and given that Word to you and you have your own personal copy of what God would say to you if He were here to speak to you and He is in His Word. He's spoken. His words are infallible. They are inerrant. They are authoritative. And there is nothing false in them. They are completely true. Uh, God's words, contrary to man's words, do not flatter anyone. God tells us the truth. God says you are a sinner. You deserve hell. God says you are dead in trespasses and sins. He gives us the unvarnished truth. In a world of fake news, fake fact check checkers, lying politicians, biased media, and big tech, it's comforting to know that there's a place that we can turn to get the unvarnished truth. And when we come to, when we're in the world, we, we hear the way the world speaks and, and what it has to say. And, and we cannot help but feel uh, tarnished and dirty just from being around them. And yet, when we turn to the Word of God, the pure words of God, we feel this cleansing taking place, uh, th this renewal in our hearts and in our minds. In the Word of God, we learn the truth. Do you want to know the truth? Here's where to check all facts. The Bible tells us the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about Jesus as the Savior and Lord of all. And, and in this book we find that God promises to deliver, to rescue sinners from sin, from hell, from death, and, and from their troubles. In Scripture, we find a road map for life, for eternity. You wonder which way to go in life? Turn to the Scriptures. We learn in the Bible how to be right with God and also how to please God once we are right with Him. That phrase, pure words, is a wonderful phrase. And then David gives us an illustration of that. He said it's like silver. Uh, there's a furnace, you know, that w was used to refine silver. And the silver is heated up, the impurities rise, and they can be removed. 
And so God's word, he said, it's like silver being refined seven times. You do the process once. You take the impurities off. That's not good enough. You do it again and again. Seven times. Seven's the number of perfection. And so that means there are no impurities whatsoever in the word of God. There's nothing misleading. There's nothing deceptive in scripture. Have you ever noticed that, that the Bible tells it like it is? That there's no attempt to try to uh, manipulate us. There's no attempt to try to to get us to lead us along and then uh, suddenly uh, spring something on us that, that we weren't going to be aware of. No, it tells us straightforwardly the things that we need to know. And there are no impurities in God's word. Uh, Psalm 19, 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure Enlightening the eyes. So you and I have a choice between the proud words of men or the pure words of God. Which will it be? I would say to you that the Bible stands the test of time. And God himself has preserved it. He inspired it. He had it written down through holy men of old. He has preserved it down through the centuries by those who carefully copied it. In the Greek and in the Hebrew, and then in, in, and translated it into other languages that we can understand it uh, thereby. And of course, uh, Satan and his uh, human servants have done their best throughout history to try to destroy this book, haven't they? But had they succeeded? No. Uh, God's word is like the proverbial anvil, right? Many hammers have been worn out. On this anvil, you cannot destroy the word of God. God keeps it so that it would be proclaimed throughout the ages that his elect might believe and be saved. Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So have you been converted? Have you heard the word of the gospel in this book? And have you turned to Jesus um, and he sought the wisdom that is found in the Bible. God promises in verse 7, he says, You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation. David is saying God will preserve his word and those who put their confidence in that word. How long will God preserve his people? Forever, it says. He preserved David and believers in that day. God preserved the early Christians under Roman and Jewish persecution. He has preserved his people in the face of Islamic persecution, Hinduism, communism. I spoke with a pastor, a friend of mine this week. I met right after I was converted. I met him in Colorado. He's, um, he grew up in India as a Roman Catholic, interestingly enough. But he was saved uh, the year before I met him, and he was on fire for the Lord and he is a pastor today in, in Delhi, India, and, uh, and he is uh, in, in charge really of a, of a network of churches. <clears throat> and he says some of these new church plants are made up entirely of Hindus who have been converted to Christ. First generation churches, if you will, from Hinduism. And I said, well, isn't, there, isn't it difficult? Isn't there persecution? He said, yes, Mark, but you cannot stop the Holy Spirit. Cannot stop the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God inspired His Word. 
The Spirit preserves His Word. The Spirit illumines His Word. He brings conversion. He sanctifies us through His Word. And He's promised to protect and preserve those who who cling to Him and His Word. Psalm 145.20 The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. You can count. Again, the Lord will do this. He's given us pure, trustworthy words. So what should we do about that? We should take up His words in our minds, in our mouths, in our hearts. We should put them into practice. We should take them up on our lips and talk about them. Again, what do we talk about? Often our speech is idle, I know. I I am guilty. Uh, But we need to talk about the Word of God. Malachi 3.16 Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. You see, these were the believers in Malachi's day who encouraged one another with the word of God. They they spoke to one another. They exhorted one another. That's what the book of Hebrews says, exhort one another daily while it is today. In the midst of our wicked generation, you see, God is looking for those who fear Him, who speak His Word, who take in His Word and speak it to each other. He takes notice of those who speak with one another and who meditate on His glorious name. He comes to their aid in time of need. And throughout eternity, He says in the next verse, they will be His jewels. And so their deeds done in His name will never be forgotten. The wicked will be forgotten, but we will not. The fighting that we may do for the cause of Christ, the witnessing that we may do, the suffering and the persecution we read earlier, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Don't be surprised about that. And when you're discouraged and it seems like the godly have disappeared from the land, take up the Word of God and read it and be encouraged. Pray. And keep praying, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. Do you think, what do you think God will do? He's already said what he will do. I will arise. What a great day that will be when God arises. It will be a dreadful day for the wicked. But it will be a day in which we can rejoice. As more begin to take the word of God seriously and to take prayer seriously as well, then we'll be able to say not... Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. But thank you, Lord, for the godly man increases. May it be so. Let's pray.